You're listening to The Last Full Measure with Carter McNish on Radio Free Hillsdale, a show dedicated to telling the stories of our nation's greatest battles in which Hillsdaleans fought. Today, we examine the cataclysmic Second Battle of Bull Run. For behind-the-scenes content, helpful visuals such as maps and pictures of the battlefields, and much more, check out our Instagram page at lastfullmeasure101.7fm. August, 1862. After defeating General McClellan's Union Army of the Potomac at the gates of Richmond, Confederate General Robert E. Lee decided to seize on this initiative and strike a devastating blow to northern morale by defeating yet another Union Army, General John Pope's Army of Virginia. A strong anti-war faction had risen in northern politics, hell-bent on making a negotiated peace with the Confederacy, forever splitting the nation in two. Lincoln's strong position on the war was already beginning to succumb to this pressure after the soul-crushing defeat McClellan had suffered so close to his goal. Another defeat, one even closer to the Union capital of Washington, would put Lincoln under even more intense pressure, perhaps even forcing him to cave in and begin negotiations. Lee knew he could never defeat the Union in a prolonged conflict, so, as his army began marching north towards Pope's army encamped along the Rappahannock River, Lee's objective was to crush northern morale and force peace negotiations. Lee dispatched General Stonewall Jackson with half of the Confederate Army, around 25,000 men, to advance north and harass the Union supply lines in the first week of August. Jackson's force advanced northwest, bypassing Union defenses along the Rappahannock River at the major crossing town of Fredericksburg, opting instead to attack the small Union force at Cedar Mountain on August 9th. Among the Union units he defeated there was the 66th Ohio, one of whom was Hillsdalian Oscar H. Dow. After defeating this force, Jackson marched to the banks of the Rappahannock near Rappahannock Station, where the majority of Pope's Union army was encamped. Jackson, seeing the strong Union force opposing him, decided to continue his flanking move, marching rapidly westward along the Rappahannock River, before finally finding an undefended crossing around 20 miles further upriver. From there, he moved directly northwards towards the Manassas Gap Railroad, a major Union supply artery. Jackson's famed foot cavalry made the march in no time, and by August 25th they had reached the railroad. By now, Lee and Longstreet, with the rest of the Confederate Army, with McClellan's army having fully evacuated the peninsula, were following Jackson, and were at this time in the area of Rappahannock Station. Lee ordered Jackson, in a letter, to attack the major Union supply depot of Manassas Junction, which would hopefully force General Pope to retreat from his strong position on the Rappahannock River in order to defend his supply lines. Then, Jackson would find a good defensive position, dig in, and hold off the attacks of the Union Army until Lee could arrive with the rest of the Confederate force and, combined, they would crush the Union Army. Jackson liked the plan, and set off down the Manassas Gap Railroad towards Manassas Junction on the 26th of August. Later that day, he arrived at Bristow Station, a small railroad depot southwest of Manassas. Jackson's troops burned the Union supplies there and tore up some track before continuing on to Manassas Junction itself, reaching it before daybreak on the 27th. Jackson's men rifled through the hundreds of boxcars filled to the brim with Union supplies, foraging for whatever valuables they could take, and in the process capturing the entirety of the Union Army's whiskey ration, which Jackson's men made quick work of consuming for themselves. Orders were given to supply the troops with rations and other articles which they could properly make subservient to their use from the captured property. It was vast in quantity and of great value, comprising 50,000 pounds of bacon, 1,000 barrels of corned beef, 2,000 barrels of salt pork, 2,000 barrels of flour, quartermasters, ordnance, and sutler's stores deposited in buildings and filling two trains of cars. 
having appropriated all that we could use, and unwilling that the residue should again fall into the hands of the enemy, who took possession of the place next day, orders were given to destroy all that remained after supplying the immediate wants of the army. General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Jackson's force, drunk on victory and whiskey, set out from Manassas Junction at dawn, burning whatever they could not carry with them, and set up defensive positions on Stone Ridge, a hill about five miles northwest of Manassas, and less than a mile from the site of the first Battle of Bull Run, which had been fought just over a year earlier. Jackson, a former instructor of artillery tactics at the Virginia Military Institute, picked his ground well. Stone Ridge provided excellent views of all the major roads in the area, but was both tree-covered enough and far enough away from the roads to allow Jackson to camp there in relative secrecy. What's more, on the eastern face of the ridge, an unfinished railroad cut had been dug, providing a ready-made trench in which his troops could take cover, while the ridge above provided his artillery with a panoramic view of the whole of the potential battlefield. The Bull Run Creek on his left anchored his left flank. A marshy field opposite the center of his line would make frontal attacks difficult, and his hilltop position, combined with the railroad cut, would make any attacks on his right flank treacherous affairs. Now, all Jackson had to do was wait for Pope to attack him, and hold on until Lee arrived. So far, Lee's plan was working perfectly. What had the Union been doing this whole time? For General Pope, the situation was very confused. He knew Lee had left the peninsula and that Jackson was ravaging his rear, but his intelligence services, run by the Pinkerton Detective Agency, were not sure of either Lee's or Jackson's actual location. He had no clue where Lee was, and only knew where Jackson was based off of where his troops had burned supply depots. With Jackson to his rear, and Lee's whereabouts unknown, Pope decided to retreat to Manassas and fight the enemy he knew was there, rather than waste time hunting Lee's phantom force. By the night of the 27th of August, the same night Jackson took up positions on Stone Ridge, most of the Union Army was in the vicinity of Manassas, searching for Jackson. However, few found him, and those that did were beaten back with heavy losses and skirmishes fought far from Jackson's camps. The next day, Union troops continued to flood into the Manassas area. Pope had only a general idea where Jackson was, except that Jackson was somewhere northwest of the junction near the old battlefield. General Siegel's Union First Corps had set up camp on Henry House Hill, the site of Jackson's famous stand a year earlier, and only a mile away from Jackson's camp. Knowing Siegel was alone, and Jackson was close by, Pope ordered the Union Army to converge on Henry House Hill before he would search for Jackson. General Erwin McDowell's Third Corps was the closest to Siegel. McDowell was the Union commander during the First Battle of Bull Run, and was determined not to ruin his reputation for a second time. He had dug in at the Thoroughfare Gap, an artificial pass made through the Bull Run Mountains for the Manassas Gap Railroad, having arrived there shortly after Jackson had passed through, and was guarding the strategic pass. He guessed, correctly as it would turn out, that Lee and the rest of the Confederate force would pass through the Gap on its way to reinforce Jackson. Pope's order to retreat to Manassas infuriated him, but he reluctantly sent back one of his divisions, under General Rufus King, to march from the Gap to reinforce Siegel. King's division began marching down the Warrenton Turnpike, which led directly to Henry House Hill. They began the march in the morning, and by early evening they were only a mile and a half west from Henry House Hill. As they continued marching, King's men spotted a lone man on horseback watching them from the crest of a low ridge about 400 yards on their left. The Union troops dismissed the lone rider as either a local or a Confederate scout. There was nothing to be worried about. As they marched, they saw the rider calmly turn about his horse and ride down the opposite slope out of view. The rider was not in fact a Confederate scout, but rather Stonewall Jackson himself. 
After seeing the exposed Union column, and seeing reports that mistakenly indicated the Union army was preparing to retreat further north, which would foil his plan, Jackson decided to attack and force a battle. Jackson rode back to his camp in a patch of woods behind the railroad cut and ordered his men forward. His artillery were first to arrive on the ridge overlooking the turnpike, and at 6.30 p.m., as the sun began drawing low in the sky behind them, the Confederate artillery opened fire on the Union column. Because of the delay caused by their redeployment, the artillery only managed to begin shelling the rearmost section of King's Column, a brigade of men from Wisconsin and Indiana known as the Black Hat Brigade for their distinctive custom uniforms. Fellow soldiers referred to them as the best-dressed cowards in the Union Army, and the Black Hatters were determined to rid themselves of this reputation. The brigade, led by Brigadier General John Gibbon, turned to face the guns and assembled in the battle line, and advanced up the ridge toward the Confederate cannons. As the Black Hatters advanced up the ridge, Another brigade of King's division, led by Brigadier General Abner Doubleday, the man who would later be credited with the creation of baseball, heard the guns and turned about in order to assist Gibbon. The two brigades marched up the wooded ridge, making for the clearing at the crest where the artillery were raining down fire upon them from. Gibbon's men advanced quietly, hoping they could catch the guns off guard and capture them. Pressing through pine thickets on the run, they quickly reached the edge of the woods. Emerging from the tree line, they found not undefended artillery, but rather an entire division of Jackson's experienced infantry, including the famed Stonewall Brigade, which had been Jackson's personal command a year earlier during the first Battle of Bull Run. The Union regiments were greeted by a volley from the rebels at point-blank range, slaughtering the front ranks of Union soldiers. The two brigades quickly reorganized and returned fire. The two opposing lines were only separated by 30 yards of knee-high grass, and as the volleys poured out from either side, the sun continued creeping lower and lower behind the western horizon. At such short ranges, Few, if any, of the shots fired missed their intended targets. For two hours, the two lines unloaded into each other. Our men on the left loaded and fired with the energy of madmen, and the sixth worked with equal desperation. This stopped the rush of the enemy, and they halted and fired upon us with their deadly musketry. During a few awful moments, I could see by the lurid light of the powder flashes the whole of both lines. The two were within 50 yards of each other, pouring musketry into each other as fast as men could load and shoot. Major Rufus Dawes, 6th Wisconsin. Rebel infantry poured from the woods by thousands. We were precisely on the brow of the hill in an open field. For an hour and 15 minutes, the most terrific fire imaginable was kept up. The hilltop, the valley, and the wooded side of the hill beyond was a continuous sheet of flame. Darkness came out and still the bullets filled the air. Private Nathaniel Rollins, 2nd Wisconsin Infantry. The fighting lasted for two and a half hours, lasting well into the night, with men aiming based off of muzzle flashes and the reflections of the light in the brass buttons and belt buckles of the enemy. At 9 p.m., outnumbered two to one, Gibbons and Doubleday's brigades retreated, step by step, back towards the Warrenton Turnpike, and from there, toward Henry House Hill. Their men stepped backwards, facing the ridge, and shot at the Confederate troops as they disengaged. General Pope and General Siegel received word of the engagement that night, and Pope, now knowing exactly where Jackson's force was, decided to attack and destroy Jackson before Lee could arrive to save him. As the night wore on, more and more of Pope's army began concentrating around Henry House Hill. As the sun rose in the morning of August 29, 1862, some of Jackson's troops inspected the battleground. One observed that he could follow the events of the battle and identify the positions of units simply by observing where the dead lay, as they all fell in neat rows where the lines had stood. Neither line had moved during the whole engagement. It would set a precedent for the battle to come. 
By now, Pope had arrived on the field, and along with Siegel's 1st Corps and King's Division, General Samuel P. Heintzelman's 2nd Corps, formerly in McClellan's army, but now reassigned to Pope, had also arrived. Pope soon learned that General McDowell's Corps, which he had ordered the day prior to march to Henry House Hill, was nowhere to be found save for Rufus King's division. Pope was determined to defeat Jackson quickly, and that morning, without his full force at disposal and furious at McDowell, he ordered an assault on Jackson's line. Jackson was content to stay on the defensive, deploying his entire force into the trench of the unfinished railroad cut. At 10 a.m., Union artillery opened fire, signaling the beginning of the attack. Heinzelman's corps attacked on the Union right, advancing toward Confederate positions in the wooded area near the Bull Run Creek along the Sudley Ford. Elements of Siegel's Corps, meanwhile, attacked in the center, across the marshy terrain, and up the steep slope of Stone Ridge. The Union troops advanced through a hail of well-placed Confederate artillery fire. Jackson, first and foremost an artillerist, had placed his guns so that nowhere along his line were there less than a dozen guns capable of raining down shells upon the Union troops. The Union troops advanced within a hundred yards of the railroad cut before coming under intense and accurate fire from Jackson's veteran infantrymen. Dozens were cut down in seconds, but yet more troops filled in the gaps created in the line. The Union troops came within 50 yards of the cut and began returning fire, but the Confederates, exposing only their heads to shoot as opposed to the Union troops which were in full view, had the advantage in the point-blank combat, and soon Union troops began falling back to regroup. The first assault was not the end of the attack, however, and Union troops continued to attack, retreat, and regroup, and attack again for two hours, each time leaving more and more of their dead comrades behind, their bodies strewn across the marshes and woods around the cut. By noon, the Confederates had used most of their ammunition, and some of Jackson's regiments were forced to toss rocks at the Union troops after running out of ammo. Fierce hand-to-hand -hand combat raged in some parts of the line, but by 1 p.m. the fighting had subsided, and Jackson's men still held the railroad cut. By this time, the rest of Pope's army was beginning to arrive. Fitz John Porter's V Corps had taken up positions on the left flank, and more units continued to trickle in. However, Pope wasn't the only one receiving reinforcements. While fighting raged on Stone Ridge on the morning of the 29th, General Irwin McDowell and his III Corps were also engaged in heavy combat at the Thoroughfare Gap. McDowell was vindicated in staying when he spotted Longstreet's Corps marching along the Manassas Gap Railroad directly towards the Gap. This was his chance to redeem himself for his blunder at Bull Run a year earlier. If he delayed Longstreet for long enough, or even better, halted him, McDowell could allow Pope to defeat Jackson before help could ever arrive. However, McDowell, down one division with the redeployment of King's division, was outnumbered 3-1 to one by Longstreet. He would have to rely on his superior position to hold the Confederates at bay. Longstreet deployed his artillery and began shelling the ridge as his infantry fanned out and advanced towards McDowell's line. The battle was brief but fierce. McDowell's men held their own for a few minutes before most of his command was killed, wounded, or captured. What remained ran for the hills. McDowell had failed spectacularly, and Longstreet now had an open road to Jackson. By noon, Longstreet's corps had arrived on the field and deployed on Jackson's right flank. Pope, however, did not know of Longstreet's presence. McDowell was out of contact and could not warn Pope. What's more, despite Union units on his left flank reporting odd activity, Pope dismissed their reports, confidently assuring his commanders that Longstreet was still many miles away. That afternoon, Lee, Jackson, and Longstreet met and discussed what to do next. Jackson briefed them on the situation and encouraged an immediate attack along the whole front. Lee, however, cautioned Jackson, proposing that they use their secrecy to their advantage. Lee decided that they would keep Longstreet hidden on the Union left, wait for the Union to attack the next day, and then launch an attack on the flank with the goal of cutting off the Union route of retreat towards both Manassas and the Stone Bridge, the only other route back to Washington. 
If successful, Lee had the chance to destroy an entire Union army, striking the devastating blow to Union morale he craved that was his best chance at ending the war. Another small Union attack at 3 p.m. broke through part of Jackson's line, but a swift counterattack sent the Union troops flying back toward their original positions. That night, both armies prepared themselves for the day ahead. Pope redeployed Fitzjohn Porter's V Corps from their positions at the Warrenton Turnpike, unknowingly facing Longstreet's Corps, to a position just in front of the marshes opposite the Confederate center. Pope planned to send Porter's Corps directly up Stone Ridge, breaking open Jackson's line and splitting his force in two. Meanwhile, Siegel and Heinzelman would attack toward Sudley Ford on the Confederate left. Pope hoped that the simultaneous attacks would put the finishing blow on Jackson's battered force. Little did he know it, but he was falling right into Lee's trap, and the V Corps, with over 20 Hillsdalians among its ranks, would suffer most for this mistake. As August 30th dawned, the men of the 4th Michigan packed up their gear and assembled for their morning roll call. Just over a year earlier, they were all farmers and college boys from southern Michigan. However, the fighting at Gaines Mill and at Malvern Hill during the Peninsula Campaign had changed them. The college boys, around 20 of them, all from Hillsdale College, had all become gentlemen soldiers, and the whole regiment experienced veterans. They would all need that experience more than ever before in the coming hours. Pope's attack came in the early afternoon, when Porter's V Corps emerged from the tree line opposite the center of Jackson's line and began advancing first to the marsh and then up the slope of the ridge toward the railroad cut. Jackson's artillery, the top stone ridge, opened up just as they had the day before. The losses were staggering, and the men of the V Corps left hundreds of dead and wounded comrades behind as they crept up the slope of the ridge. The 4th Michigan was in the center of the attack, and the Union line made it to within 50 yards of the Confederate line. Some regiments, like the 4th Michigan, got close enough to fire down into the cut, negating the advantage of the cover it provided for the Confederates. Shrapnel rained down from on high, and Confederate cannons closer to the front turned themselves into giant shotguns, firing canister shot into the Union troops. The Union troops, despite suffering appalling losses, had seen worse at Gaines Mill, and continued to fight to the bitter end in front of the railroad cut. The Union troops were so persistent in their attack that Jackson soon became quite concerned that a breakthrough would soon occur. Jackson sent a flurry of messages to Lee, begging him to begin Longstreet's attack. Lee decided against this, and instead ordered two batteries of artillery from Longstreet's corps to deploy to the Bronner Farm, on the same hill where the Black Hatters had fought on the 28th, which overlooked the railroad cut and the entirety of Porter's corps. The cannons, commanded by Stephen D. Lee, of no relation to Robert, poured devastating fire into the rear echelons of Porter's corps. The Union troops began to crumble under the pressure of the cannon fire, and General Butterfield, now a divisional commander after his warlocks at Gaines Mill, requested reinforcements. Porter decided not to send more men in, however, upon seeing the devastating effect of the new Confederate artillery. By 3.30 p.m., the artillery fire had caused enough damage to Porter's Corps that the V Corps began withdrawing back towards the tree line. Robert E. Lee, looking on from a hill nearby, sensed that the opportune moment had arrived and ordered Longstreet forward. Longstreet's 25,000 men advanced through the woods and fields south of the Warrenton Turnpike. Using the terrain to conceal their movement, they would move towards Henringhouse Hill, behind the main Union line, and sitting astride the main road to Manassas Junction. Then they would take the hill, and then part of the Corps would proceed to Stone Bridge, cutting off the only other Union escape route back to Washington. The only Union troops standing in their way were the scattered units of General James B. Ricketts' division, who were not expecting a fight and were instead resting in their camps atop Chin Ridge, the last ridge before Henry House Hill. 
Union troops encamped in the clearing at the crest of the ridge were caught completely by surprise when Longstreet's men emerged from the tree line. The Union troops, mostly from New York, formed a hasty defense line, many only half-dressed. The Confederates swept up onto the ridge, but the New Yorkers stood their ground, inflicting heavy casualties. The New Yorkers themselves suffered horrifying losses, losing over half their men killed or wounded, but they continued to put up fierce resistance, buying time for reinforcements to arrive. Pope received word of the attack and sent John F. Reynolds' division into the fray. Reynolds set up a defensive line at the edge of Henry House Hill. The remnants of Ricketts' division retreated from Chin Ridge after three hours of fighting to this new defensive line, and for two hours held off repeated Confederate attacks. Reynolds knew he could not hold for much longer, and made General Pope aware of this. Pope decided that with the road to Manassas already cut off by Confederate cavalry and infantry, and with his only other route of escape threatened, the time had come to abandon the field. He quickly began organizing a retreat back across the stone bridge to save his army from destruction. Lee saw that Pope was beginning to retreat and ordered Jackson to join in the attack. Pope deployed two more divisions to the right of Reynolds to stifle the second attack, while the rest of the army began evacuating. Pope's rear guard held out until nightfall, slowly falling back towards the stone bridge. When sunset ended the fighting, the beleaguered Union rear guard retreated across the Bull Run Creek and toward Washington. Lee had won another major victory over an entire Union army, but had failed to destroy it as was his plan. Despite this, though, he had achieved the greatest comeback in military history, defeating two armies greater in size than his own, and driving back Union forces from the gates of Richmond all the way to Washington. However, because he had failed to destroy either army, the Union still possessed a significant fighting force, which Lincoln could use to ward off the attacks from anti-war lobbyists in Washington. If Lee wanted to force Lincoln to the negotiating table, he reckoned he had two options. One, destroy the Union army, or two, win a victory on northern soil. Lee decided to try both, and soon began marching north toward the Potomac River, intent on carrying the war to northern soil. That was the last full measure with Carter McNish on Radio Free Hillsdale. Join us next time as we discuss the bloodiest day of fighting in the Civil War, the Battle of Antietam.